1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Animal Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Callie Smith, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with John P. Kluck about his book, Voracious Science and Vulnerable Animals, A Primate Scientist's Ethical Journey. As a warning, this interview will include discussion of animal suffering. In this book, Gluck takes readers through his transformation from animal researcher to research ethicist. He was a graduate student and mentee of psychologist Harry Harlow, who was known for his experiments with rhesus monkeys regarding attachment, isolation, and depression. After completing his doctorate in psychology, Gluck started his own primate research lab at the University of New Mexico in the 1970s, where he has since been a faculty member. In the 1990s, Gluck became a vocal advocate and advisor for animal research ethics. His perspective is a rare and necessary voice that challenges the status quo use of animals as research subjects. John Gluck, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thanks. Thanks a lot, Callie. I appreciate it. Good description. That was a nice introduction.
0: Oh, good, 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 good. good. So first of all, I think we just need to begin with like a cleansing breath because this was a very difficult book to read, um, and also I know you state in it it was very difficult for you to write. So I, I guess as a place to begin, what kept you going through all of that difficulty? What made this so necessary for you to write?
1: Yeah, um, I, I did find it to be a difficult book to write. Um, and also an easy one. The difficult part was that it, to write what I wanted to write or what I felt I needed to write, which was trying to create and to provide to potential readers uh, a picture of uh, what uh, the animal research world that I lived in, which I think was fairly representative of a lot of people, what it was like and uh, the kinds of conflicts that emerged and the kinds of confusions that occurred and the kinds of uh, hand-wringing that happened and so on. Uh, And that, having to recall a lot of those uh, moments or times uh, was the difficult part uh, because I I should say i've I've been a compulsive three by five card person most of my professional life, so i'm always you know for years been writing round notes to myself about things I wanted to read or things that had just happened to me and so on and so I had a a really a large stack of these little cards with incidences that that occurred to me as a as a scientist and as a primate scientist and uh and so I went through all of those again, and um, that was uh, what was hard about it was um, the disappointment that I had of myself about uh, my lack of action in so many of those uh, moments and cases and circumstances that uh, stuck in my mind, and I was um, reluctant to uh, do much about them. So that was the hard part. Um, the the easy part was was my motivation to do it. Uh, like I said, I wanted to create a a, a text or a you know a, a story here that was accurate about uh, uh, the the primate research context and world per se, and I was ready to do that. And I and um, uh that part was easy the motivation you know getting to the desk and writing it uh was never a problem and uh uh the uh then of course you know the, the business of publishing a book or you know was a little bit you know a little bit more difficult you know getting the right publisher and so on. talking to editors and what they wanted to do with your manuscript and so on but uh, I felt totally uh, into the project itself.
0: That wasn't even a question that I had um, prepared for, but as you were talking, uh, as I was reading the book, I just remembered that you write about someone else who had written a book about animal research, and the editors were like, oh, we should take out maybe the, the most difficult parts or the most gruesome parts. Um, so for your experience with editors, was there any pushback about the types of things that you included, or did they kind of like you know agree to take your content as is
1: uh yeah well w- when i landed with uh, the university of chicago press um which you know is a great publisher in in the academic world and and uh, their their staff of of editors and so on are really quite remarkable uh no i didn't experience um Editors of wanting to make things a little less uh difficult to read or the pictures a little less ugly i didn't I mm-hmm. didn't have that experience but w- what I did have was um i had i guess what I had to learn as a writer uh that you don't want to have too many examples of the, of <laughs>
0: You may have a stack of cards, but not every one of them can make the cut.
1: <laughs> exactly. And, and what I had written was, you know, like incident after incident after incident, moment of learning, moment of failure, so on. And um, I, it was a wonderful interaction I had with uh, one of the editors, the one of development editors, because he was trying to tell me that you're just going to uh, uh, make it harder to get your message across if you bombard people with uh, um, pictures. And when you don't need that many to make the point. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was, uh, I would say, it was difficult because it was hard to go back and forth with the editor, but I learned a heck heck of a lot about uh, writing for an audience like this. Uh, I mean, because my experience was in scientific writing, you know, where everything is uh, you know pretty limited and focused and constrained.
0: well, just as a comment on the prose, even though the subject matter is of course very difficult at times, I mean, your writing is very vivid, it's very sincere, and it's um, the the examples that remain are very moving and memorable. Um I'm thinking about. Uh, When you were an undergrad, it's a scene that you write about, and you were um, you were asked to kind of euthanize a bunch of rats, and you thought, okay, I'll just get a lot of chloroform, put them in a bag, and hopefully that'll be it. And then they they lived, they actually survived, and so there was the second round of one of your professors said, okay, here's another way to kill them, and you take them to the roof and you threw them. against the wall. And it was just like, oh my gosh, this is horrifying. But yes, that's one example just for our audiences.
1: Yeah, that it's amazing to think that stunning uh, was an acceptable um, method of euthanasia. Yeah, I'm not so sure it's still not, but, uh, but it was certainly uh, uh, an ugly lesson.
0: That's another thing too. I mean, as someone who's outside of the of the sciences, I come from a humanities background. So much of this is not visible. Um, I mean, other than you know your text and others about research, access to what really happens—it's—it's it's very hidden from the public, and I think that's—that's that's deliberate. So, um, which is another reason I think that adds credence to why your book is so important. Um, Let's start with your childhood because that's where you you begin, and I love that you begin there because you know you have a very um, unique story, and but yet that there's so many actionable things that I think readers, myself included, can take away from from this. Of okay, how do you try to live the best you can in the world? And I and I like that you begin with your childhood because those experiences with animals, family pets, the animals in your environment. Um, are so formative. And that's one thing that I, your writing really helped draw my attention to. So um, why did you begin there with your childhood?
1: Well, I, 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 uh, as, as I, as I try to describe in, in the book, um, the uh, environment that I grew up in in New York City was, uh, uh, I, I would say, not too unusual. That is, that uh, people are packed together and uh, live close by one another. And, and, but yet, you know, there's always this sense when you're living close together with people in other apartments or even in your own space, that you, you have to develop a kind of way of seeing other people, but not letting them know. I mean, it's sort of like you, how do you create privacy when you're surrounded by people? And there's ways of doing that. it's it's sort of like, um, you know, you know, things are happening and you're aware of things that are happening to individuals and so on and so forth, but you often don't try to call attention to it because you want, you want privacy for yourself and you want the person you're, you may be listening to or seeing uh, uh, to have some privacy as well. So, but as a consequence of that, uh the the positive side of that for me was it placed me in such a context of seeing you know different age groups of people i lived with uh you know we lived in a you know fairly packed uh, apartment setting and uh, my grandparents were there and my parents and and uh, there were you know occasionally other relatives who would stay for a while and so on and so what what i got to got to see, and why I thought it was important to talk about, was one of the things that captured me as a as a kid uh, was the uh, lameness of biomedicine. Um, my father had a neurodegenerative disease that was starting when I was uh, about, I guess about eleven or twelve years old, and I could see him uh, Crumbling a little bit over the years, and seeing that happen, and uh, I uh, was also close to my grandmother, who uh, was a very depressed uh, person, and uh, and I saw her struggles with that, and um, and 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 what I what I got to see was how little was available in a clinical setting for people suffering, as I saw around me. And some people just suffering because they're getting old. And uh, and there wasn't much available uh, for at least the socioeconomic strata that I w- was growing up in, which was, you know, I guess, working class. Um, th- there just wasn't much. And I, you know, I would go with my father sometimes to uh, uh, the hospital where he would be evaluated for the... This, Parkinson's disease that he had, and um, uh, it, it, it just wasn't very impressive, <laughs> you know. And uh, it was, um, and 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 I could see even in the clinicians, their strain for like wishing they had more control and more tools and things of that sort. And I could, I could see that it was very clear to me, and and that's what you know uh, eventually uh got me into the into the science world uh you know it was it was, it was being so thoroughly uh connected with uh some of the vicissitudes of old age and and uh diseases that still were pretty low on the priority clinical list and um and that that's what really kind of booted me into the uh university and And a search for uh, uh, topics to study.
0: I love that you start there because I think one thing that really became clear when reading your book is that no one, for the most part, hopefully, sets out me like, oh, I want to, you know, stun rats to death, or I want to do these things to animals. Oftentimes, you know, like your story, it starts out with here is a true problem, and here is, you know, my interest in trying to make the world better you know and and I think what from your story there's this like slow indoctrination I thought the pacing of your writing and the way the chapters were scaffolded um, I really got that sense of how even from a hunting trip with a friend that you had met who lived in West Texas all the way through undergrad there's just these small ways in which if you're going to pursue that research um, you have to kind of shut off the emotional part. is there anything else you'd like to add to that aspect?
1: well I think that I think you're're you're, you're right on the money there and uh, uh, what what I experienced growing up was uh, you know the uh, the family uh, pets uh, were uh truly family members and uh, um and I should say that you know uh, that <laughs> The vet the veterinarian bills were usually paid before the the other bills in the house uh, because the family felt how how crucial it was that if you know, a dog was ill or something of that sort that you you went to the highest level of uh, treatment as as quickly as you can and um, so uh yeah i i um, there was no you know we didn't have ethical discussions about uh, Animal cognition or anything like that in my home it was just how people treated them and um, uh, it was so obvious to me that uh, uh, and and I, and I and i I heard the lessons too you know i I remember one incident as i'm talking to you now uh, where uh, my grandmother uh called to me and wanted me to go out and uh, out into the back uh, alley uh, of the apartment we lived in uh, to meet uh, a man who had a horse. And this is New York City. <laughs> and, 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 and there's still this, uh, there were still people with wagons and horses, you know, and this guy was the ragman and he would collect uh you know diffuse uh objects like rags and so on and obviously sold them in uh, some sec- second hand uh, mechanism to make his life and and um and i could hear him you know you could always hear him i think it was a wednesday when he usually showed up you could hear the sound of the the horses' hoofs on the asphalt and coming down this narrow alley and so on pulling a small cart and uh my grandmother called me out and uh to to meet the uh ragman i and uh, uh he was a a native German man and my grandmother was a, a German immigrant and they were connected and they would s- they were standing there and talking to one another in their native language and i'm i'm standing there looking at this horse this big brown horse and it was summer and and the you know the flies were biting its butt and and um i mean the horse just seemed to be in such a like had a real hard job you know dealing with traffic and it just it just seemed like what a what an awful situation for this animal that was built to run! And um, I asked my grandmother. I said, and, 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 the, "And the rag man, you know, looked very poor, and, and he was, you know, he was good-natured. I could see they were laughing with one another, but you could see he was having a hard time, and in, in, uh, with his existence. And I, and I, when he pulled away." I asked my grandmother, I said, uh, it just seemed so difficult. And she just looked at me and she said uh, uh, in German, uh, das Leben ist hart. Life is hard. And um, that was her method uh, mentioned uh, mentioned to me to, to take home with me. Life is hard and you have to find some way to survive and still have... Joy in your life, you know. You had to you had to find a way to do that, and uh, and of course, when she said life was hard, she meant the horse too, not just the man. And it was clear to me she meant the horse because she would she gave me like apple slices to to feed to the horse and so on and so forth. So the you know this context of seeing animals as living. Beings also having an existential conflict in their own lives, as we did, what we did our, our own, uh, was the the context in which I, I I thought about animals and believed about them. And when I went to the university and got fascinated with uh, psychology and neuroscience, um, those um, proclivities about how to think about animals, was challenged immediately um, by the kinds of methodology that I saw, the kinds of housing environments that I saw, the kinds of experimental uh, manipulations that I saw. Um, And the thing that was so clear to me was uh, I, I had a choice. It was like, well, this is not the world for me. Or I had to find a way to tolerate it, and um, and I was, you know, I was really driven to tolerate it, and uh, and I'll tell you why. Um, Not not only that, you know, the history I of of having a family that suffered like everybody else's family, but um, this was a time. This was like the nineteen mid nineteen sixties. When psychology as a science was uh, highly promoted, there was this view that psychology and behavioral science more generally and neuroscience uh, had such great capability uh, to deal with disease, to deal with uh, the structure of of, uh, confused uh, experimental entities. Uh, it It was like you know, even psychologists were talking about designing culture on the basis of psychological principles and things of that sort. So that picture to me was just so attractive. Like, okay, here is a discipline, psychology, neuroscience, that really are imagining themselves as able to uh, bring so much better treatment biomedically and and socially and culturally and so on and so forth. So it, it, it just seemed so like this, is the, this was the direction to go in and that's the way I felt it. This is the, the direction to go in. And so um, when I complained about how difficult it was to be in the lab and see some of the things that I saw, uh, usually the response was, um, well, maybe you're not cut out for this. It wasn't like, uh, I understand, and let's maybe we need to change some of our methods that makes it easier for you to work in, in the context of animals and so on. Yeah, I didn't hear that. I heard was, well, you know, maybe you're just not cut out to be this kind of rigorous scientist. And that's kind of how, it was, how I heard it, was if you really cared about scientific advancement, you were going to have to make uh, uh, make an agreement with yourself to not be dissuaded by some of the, the methods that were seen as necessary. And uh, I, bought, your, I bought into that.
0: I'm thinking about your grandmother's words about life is hard, and it seems like in some ways your professors were telling you a similar thing, like this this work is hard, like this type of academic life, this type of is hard and, and in an interesting way, your your really uh, incredible story about the ragman and the horse. Your labor became so tied up in in animals' lives yeah. as well, to different degrees than the ragman, of course. But um, it's just a really fascinating parallel. And yes, so <laughs> just to kind of back up a little bit and. Um, Lighten the mood. I it's I guess it's not necessarily a mood lightener, but you were talking about one of your graduate students once you became a professor, and you expected him to acknowledge you in the credits, right? Like, oh, thank you, Dr. Gluck, for you know your support in this project, blah, la as one would usually do. Um, but instead, the student did something that was really surprising. Do you want to tell listeners what what they did?
1: Yeah, that's um, yeah. Uh, Robert Frank uh, was my first uh, graduate student when I was at the uni- when I started at the University of new Mexico, and um, uh, he did some studies on uh, the the way in which animals who had been raised with uh, minimal social experience were able to acquire some uh, new social behaviors and uh And I remember when I was reading his uh, uh the final copy of the of the, uh, of, the of the thesis and I, and I did, just like you said, I quickly turned to the acknowledgments because I wanted to see uh, what he had to say about me
0: <laughs> and,
1: yeah. and uh, what who who he really acknowledged uh were the monkeys. And um, he was particularly, he even named one, G-44, uh, a monkey that had died during the course of his experiment. And um, and he was, you know, uh, thunderstruck by the loss of that animal, not only because it was crucial to his science, but he had been close enough to this animal over the course of the experiments that he was doing that he developed a a relationship. Uh, He understood her as an animal and her as a being and and what frightened her and what didn't frighten her and so on and so forth. And so his his acknowledgement was her. And I was so um, I I couldn't believe it, actually, you know, it was uh, because I actually, you know, he seemed like a pretty tough guy Mm -hmm. and uh, um, he was a All-American, had been an All-American swimmer in college and so on. You know, very tough head, you know, focused and so on. But to see that this um, experience of study, studying and losing. Uh, an animal uh, had more than just uh, uh, an effect on the experiment per se, but on his emotional um, involvement with uh, that kind of science. And I should say that uh, Bob Frank never did another animal experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, when he graduated, he um, never did another animal experiment. So uh what I saw there was, you know, somebody with the strength of character to acknowledge uh, the different levels uh, that, in, that he was influenced uh, by in terms of doing animal research.
0: It seems like yeah, maybe in his case and with other people as well, if you decide you're not going to stay In this path, it's like you just have to fully remove yourself or change your life's course. Like I know you did many times um, and you have fought really hard despite things to kind of stay in both worlds, to stay connected with both worlds. But it doesn't seem like there is a lot of space really for someone to have those concerns like your student did, but yet stay connected with animal research.
1: You know, I don't know if this I, I included this in the book. But, um, uh, the, you know, the, the, as, you're, as you're getting at, there, there comes a time when I feel like um, I, I've got to really study the ethics of this you know, much more significantly and much more carefully and so on. And, and as it turned out, when this is you know uh, rushing around in my mind about uh, getting more uh, uh, understanding of of research ethics and things of that sort. Um, I had a, a sabbatical leave coming up, and so uh, here's this year off that uh, you can get, and uh, so I applied for it. And when I applied for it, I had before I applied for it, I had a I had uh, applied to get into a, a a fellowship at the at Georgetown University. At their uh, Kennedy Institute of Ethics Institute, uh, which uh, involved uh, human research and animal research topics. And so I had, you know, I had applied to that and, you know, gotten accepted and so on. And so then I wrote my application to go on this leave from the university and go study research ethics, and it was turned down. (laughs) <laughs> the, um, my application to go for that year was turned down. And I went to the chair of the uh, committee that makes these decisions at the, uh, in the arts and sciences, uh, division. And I said, uh, um, can you explain to me why the committee turned this down? And they said, well, you know, you're, you've been a pretty active experimentalist and, uh, We just couldn't see how taking a year to study ethics was going to benefit your projects. And I, what that told me was not that they were dumb or anything like that, but they, they, my description of what I had been doing was so strongly experimental, animal oriented, and so on that when I'm saying I'm, I, I wanted to go study bioethics, it was like, oh, you're giving up on this world and you've been reasonably successful in it and we want you to stay in it. You know, we think that's the best thing for you uh, career-wise. And, uh, but I think it also illustrated something that I, which encouraged me to make this application to the Kennedy Institute of Ethics at Georgetown was I couldn't find too many people to talk to about my misgivings that were developing. I could talk to students about it because many students were having those misgivings. But if, when I talked to some of my uh, my uh, professor colleagues and so on, uh, there wasn't that much interest. Uh, and uh, And so that's why I felt like I, I really, needed to go somewhere, uh, to get an in-depth kind of, uh, uh exposure. Uh, but <laughs> so, so I, I did, I went to my department ch- chair and I said, uh, uh, Bill, I, I, I got this letter they turned down my spatical and so on and so forth. And I said, well, I want you to know, I'm looking for a job, I'm leaving. And if, if they, if they can't. Uh, see the importance of having an ethical grounding in research. I, I don't want to be at this university, and uh, I really wasn't going to go look for another job. I liked <laughs> where I was, I, and and uh, Charlene, my partner, she she liked living there, and our children were here, and so on and so forth. But it was like the only time I ever tried to to. Uh, to really bluff a university administrator and I I could I knew he wanted me to stay and so anyhow I told him I'm leaving and uh, about a month later he came back and said oh they changed their mind uh you they're, they're happy to support your uh, your leave to go study bioethics and uh and so I did but uh it was like i i still think about it when i when i hear myself describing the story is why would they be so reluctant
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know and um
0: these things just get siloed right they only saw you as like the guy who experiments <laughs> on on animals
1: well i i think also callie that um they wanted to keep me where i was mm-hmm and um because you know from their perspective it was good for the university it was you know good for some of the the uh, academic programs and when somebody gets into the ethical world and and it's taken it seriously things are going to change because you're going to see things very very differently once you find yourself you know attuned to ethical issues with some sophistication and uh uh, I think that, again, I think they preferred to keep me in where I, not, not like they were trying to keep me in line, but what they thought was good for me and the university.
0: You write at some point in your book, you know, people expect philosophers to question things and, and to do all of that, but not really scientists necessarily in terms of like the, the larger ethical questions, the big dilemmas about what is good, what is evil? What is, what is right action? Um, and that's that a big part of your story as well, like just navigating all of these institutional structures um, and and how to try to do your best work within those um, while also still, you know, maintaining a job. <laughs> because I was thinking when you were telling that story, uh, Harlow had given you advice that you write about, like, don't don't say you're leaving a job until you really have <laughs> another job, especially in academia. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> That's right.
0: Uh, this might be a good time to just briefly turn to him for a moment, because he he seems like um, such a significant presence um, in your life and in the story. And yeah, what do you want to say about Harry Houdini? There's so much to say about him, but what would you like to say about him today?
1: Um, yeah, I. This is uh, whenever I think about him and my interactions with him and my relationship with him and his laboratory. And, um, I'm filled with ambivalence. And, um, uh, when, you know, I, I got to go to the university, of Wisconsin primate lab, uh, because I wanted to go there. I wanted to study how to work with primates. And, uh, and the reason I wanted to was there had been a move in psychology that studying animals like rats and mice and so on and so forth you know, had their place. But, um, but if we were going to be studying animals that might be uh, more analog- uh, good analogues to human behavior, we should at least be studying the primate order somewhere. And I, you know, I agreed with that. That seemed to make sense. And there was quite a bit of energy being. uh, I experienced quite a bit of energy in the uh, in the in the in the academic world about learning how to work with chimpanzees and monkeys and so on and so forth. And so I wrote Harlow a letter uh, because I was at uh, another university at the time, Texas Tech, and. um, I wrote Harlow a letter and said, uh, you know, that I I wanted to get some experience in doing research with nonhuman primates, and uh, could he possibly uh, uh, find a room for me to, to do a, uh, an internship for a summer? And um, and, and I just quickly, really, that- you know,
0: listeners may already know, but like that was the the leading place to do primate research, right? Like,
1: it, it, you know, it absolutely was. You okay, know, yes.
0: So that would Harle, be the Harle place to go.
1: Con- right. Harlow was considered you know, one of the top five uh, psychologists, neuroscientists in the world. And uh, his laboratory at the University of Wisconsin in Madison was considered really like the mecca of uh, primate research. And uh, so I wrote him this letter, and and uh, he wrote me back. It was this handwritten note that said, uh, uh, "Sure, you can come back. You can come up here for ten weeks, and and uh, and I'll pay you uh, uh, so much half time." And then he said in his letter, uh, "I'll pay you half time, but I expect that you will work at least full time." And uh, and I thought, well, oh, that is really great, because what is he telling me? He's telling me science is so important that you have to make these kind of arrangements. You may not get paid a lot, but you here's this opportunity. And I expect that you're going to really take it and really uh, spend your hours uh, not at the uh, uh, the uh, library, but here in the laboratory, learning these procedures. And uh, that, that's kind of characteristic of Harlow as I met him. And uh, he was uh, generous in the sense of giving people the opportunity to express their experimental beliefs and uh, hypotheses and things of that sort. He was very generous about that. And um, he never I never heard him say to me, and I can't recall him ever saying it to any of the people I knew closely, other graduate students when I eventually went to Wisconsin as a graduate student, do this experiment. I never heard him say that Um, or I want you to do this experiment, not that one. I never heard it. It was um, express yourself. develop and be creative about your your scientific hypotheses and then tell me about them. And if we can support it, we'll do that. Now, that was uh, a very positive uh, dimension, I think, uh, for a student to hear. Uh, But of course, the context of that laboratory was what was well, well, really was going to kind of shape what you ended up doing Uh, uh, in general terms. You're going to be working with monkeys. You're going to be working on topics of learning and development and and, uh, neural control of behavior and things because that's what was happening around you uh, in that place. So you you were going to find your way, but within that constraint of what the lab did, but he really wanted you to... Find your hypothesis yourself. He didn't want to give it to anybody. And um, so I would, it's a funny thing about Harlow. Um, (laughs) He, um, you know, he would walk around the the halls uh, of the lab and if you know, like, if 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 we were uh, a bunch of us graduate students would would be might be talking about the uh, the Packers football game from Sunday, and uh, and he would walk up to the group of us and and he'd say, he'd look at us and say, "Making progress," and then then just walk away. He didn't say like, "Get your butt out of here." you know, get back to your lab." It just just has this, with this kind of wry smile, making progress. And uh, the other thing I have to tell you about that lab, um, you know, I still consider a lot of the people that I knew there who were, you know, staff members, other students, and so on, uh, some of the most important people in my life. And um, I mean I graduated from there near fifty years ago. And uh I still hear when some uh member of the staff passes away, I I you know, people reach out to me and uh and, and other other students who work there and so on and so forth. And we we've stayed connected for fifty years, you know, editorial secretaries, uh um uh, shop people who built apparatus and so Harlow created that. Uh, people got along. It's not like they agreed uh with one another all the time. They didn't. And um and it was a there was an age difference Uh, There were people that worked there that were older, had been in the military, and so on and so forth. And then there's a bunch of us students, and this is in the Vietnam era, and the University of Wisconsin was a very anti-Vietnam War uh, university. And so there was conflict between people who were older and had a different perspective on the military than the younger students. And we would fight like hell at lunchtime about uh, Vietnam and so on and so forth, but when it came to working together, like needing to get a, a, a piece of equipment built or uh, a, a veterinarian to treat a sick monkey or it was completely smooth. And I don't know how he did that, but he did create that world that where people got along and worked together. Now what we think of about the work is another question. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, What I've said about Harlow before, and I'm sticking with it, his biggest enemy as a psychologist and a primatologist was that he was too prominent. I mean, when I went to Wisconsin, late late 1960s 1967 um he he'd already gotten the national medal of science from Lyndon johnson he was already in the the philosophical society he was already in the national academy of sciences and so on so forth all these you know great uh achievements for science he had all those things and um there was the sense of how, who am I to criticize it? You know, and I remember, you know, coming across some of the experiments that I think really created uh, uh, a lot of suffering in the animals. And I'm not so sure much in the way it benefits scientifically. And I would see them and I, it's like, this shouldn't happen. This is about like
0: the pit of despair, just as one example yeah, exactly.
1: like for our the, listeners. Yeah. Yeah, the pit of despair would be one of them. I remember walking into that room and seeing that those devices set up and it's like, you know, and the monkeys with urine burns and it was all it was just incredibly disgusting. And uh, well but the thought that I know I had and some other of my colleagues had, well it was who are we to criticize? You know, it would be, you know, here he is, you know, though he, he, he never seemed haughty, you know, like I'm a big shot. scientist. I, you know, I never saw that aspect of it, but he hadn't created, uh, easy communications between different levels in his lab with him. And, um, uh, but I think it was mostly people being uh, struck by his prominence and keeping quiet when they were disturbed about some questions uh, or had some questions about some of the experiments that were going on. So it was, uh, uh, I, I would say this was, you know, some of the things that made it hard to write the book was remembering this kind of cowardice. And that's what it is. Um, You know, it's a strange sort of thing to say, well, I want to respect this person by not telling him, I think I've got a a potentially important view about what you're doing. Um, And here's the other thing, Callie. If I had walked into his office, sat down and said, uh, Dr. Harlow, I, I think these, okay, pit of despair studies are, are just to create too much suffering in the animals and too little benefit coming out of them i don't think he'd throw us out of the damn office i that wasn't his way you know i thinking now i'm i'm, I'm sure he'd listen i don't know if he'd do anything different but he wouldn't make fun of me and say well you're just too stupid and uh, you know, don't you ever say anything like that to me again, and so on and so forth. I don't believe that would have happened. And- In the book
0: you write about when you were, you know, deciding do I take the department chair position or do I, you know, fully pursue this, being on committees and really trying to establish this, um, you know, ethical infrastructure for looking at animal testing, you were thinking about Harlow and um, what would have happened if you would have asked him, Hey, Dr. Harlow, can we use some of this grant money to buy Peter Singer's animal liberation? And you write that he would have said, yeah, buy three copies probably, right? One for you, one for me and one for the library. And I was like, wow, that, that is really fascinating,
1: I, you know, complicated. I, 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 Kelly, I feel very confident about that statement too. Um, because that was the world he created for students in his lab. Um, You know, we had a nice personal library that was there available for our use. Um, We had full use of the Xeroxing machine, you know, for free. You know, he was always supportive about, well, learn this or go over, take that course over in anthropology about... uh, uh, you know, primate behavior and so on and so forth, I I feel really confident he would have said, let's get three books. And uh, he probably would have, uh, you know, given a lecture somewhere about how he agreed or disagreed, and I would imagine disagreed with Peter Singer's uh, attributions of his work, but he wouldn't have denied it. Um, I'm pretty sure about that.
0: That seems like maybe a good point to sort of think about Now, and moving forward, um, what are some things that you are encouraged by um, that you see happening with with research and students and and various levels of power conducting these
1: things? You know, uh, let me tell you what I'm uh, disappointed about. Uh, Yeah, let's do that. (laughs) While we're we're talking about the book right now, and uh, um, I wrote that book, uh, for an audience of people, scientists and the public. I, I didn't, I didn't try to make it hard to, uh, f- you know, for somebody who wasn't an act, uh, an active scientist that couldn't understand what I was describing. I tried very hard at that, uh, but I also wanted my colleagues, uh, that they wouldn't deny immediately without reading that it might be worth reading a little bit about. About how this colleague of theirs who, you know, you know, came from this, you know, uh, educational background and is having second thoughts and is as an argument to make about those second thoughts. So let me say this. Uh, I wrote that book. uh, I think it was published in 2016. Um, I haven't received one, not one, invitation to speak at a psychology department about Mm. the contents of that book. Now, I have been invited and I've talked at philosophy departments, uh, American study departments, uh, various uh, science departments and so on, but not one invitation from a psychology department. And I should say that it was, the book was reasonably reviewed positively by, you know, uh, an American Psychological Association journal that recommended the book, uh, you know, for if you're not interested in the uh, ethics, there's certainly a lot of history in there that might be interesting to read about and but never one invitation. Now, why is that? Now, I, I should hmm. say not even in my own department <laughs> after I retired. Um, uh what does that mean um, i I think that uh it is still too easy for some scientists that use animals uh in biomedical and behavioral work to think that if you're you have a question about the ethics of it, you must be some sort of crazy individual who um uh, if I give you any credence, you're going to burn down my lab or you're going to uh, you're, you're going to release monkeys from their cages, and so on and so forth. Um, or you're going to you know, you're going to set fire to my house or something of that sort. And th- that. Scenario seems to be a bit immovable. And. And. Um, And, you know, and it's important to know, you know, like uh, no, no scientist in the United States has ever been shot or killed (laughs) or maimed by an animal, quote, extremist, unquote. It hasn't happened. Now, anti-abortion people uh, have killed eight physicians. Now... That that hasn't happened in this particular area, and um, but yet that picture of, of having a different view about who animals are and how we get to know them and what kinds of ethical responsibilities we have to them—it's it, still too easy to bin up with um, hostility. That that uh, it's that's just really. Ex- hostility, not really good scientific or even very good ethical argument, uh, which I say is completely wrong. Um, you know, and I, I, uh, so I'm disappointed with that. And uh, and, that, and what that goes to is the I think the ethical education of scientists is is better than it was when I was a graduate student. Uh, I think you know if you get if you're a, if you're a graduate student being supported by a grant from the National Science Foundation, uh, and you're uh, an assistant in a research project, you have to, you have to take a, a class on uh, on ethics and uh, doing uh, learning about integrity of research and uh, some of the basic ethical standards of human and animal research. You're required to, I think it's something like 15 hours or 20 hours of face to face discussion about these issues. Um, uh, That's that's a box checking kind of uh, way to go about teaching ethics. You know, okay, you want you want to get your check next month. Uh, you got to take this class, you know. And uh, did you take the class? Yes. Were you there for fifteen hours? Yes. Check. All right. Now we can get back to work. So and you've taught some year. of these
0: classes, Pardon? and you've taught some of these classes, right? Like I, I think in the book, I remember reading that you would you had taught animal ethics classes oh, I or did. ethics and research classes.
1: I, you know, and what was interesting about that. When I I was teaching uh, seminars and so on about animal ethics, other researchers in the department or other departments would come talk to me, students and so on, but they would stand by the door of my office. They wouldn't come in. It's
0: interesting, like spatially, they were just (laughs) just, very funny.
1: When I get too
0: close to you, it might rub
1: off. God knows what will happen. But but I'm serious. We'd have these discussions of, you know, a graduate student on, you know, by the open door. And we would talk about stuff. And I would say, well, why don't you come to the class? I mean, we can talk about some of these things and we'll work and so on and so forth. It was very rare to see it happen. And... uh, 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 so the, those i think there's there's not enough emphasis on teaching and encouraging scientists to not only be technically and scientifically sophisticated but that they have a desire to have a moral identity you know who are you as a scientist as a human being and how those how are those those spheres of influence interacting, how do you make that happen? You know how do you have a, a, a set of coherent ethical principles that you follow in your life you know that aren't that are that are consistent with one another and not inconsistent um, you know uh, uh, let me t- i don 't know if we have time for this story, but i uh. this was a couple of years ago. I sent letters. I think it was about 150 letters to editors of major biomedical journals. And I wrote the editor and I said, "Um, would you have any objection if you asked the reviewers of your journal when they're reviewing manuscripts that have been submitted, that they, uh, besides making comments about the structure of the scientist scientists, uh, science the design of the experiment and the data collected and so on and so forth, that you ask them also to comment on the ethics of that study. What's their judgment of the ethics of that study? Uh, <clears throat> for, uh,
0: did you get any responses? <laughs> you weren't asked to give lecture talks anywhere, but did you get a response to your letters? <laughs> I,
1: I, I got, I got uh, several. And there were a couple, which I thought were very good. They said, that's a good question. Why don't you write a little paper about that and submit it to this journal? And um, and one other person who was editor of a very uh, significant biomedical journal wrote me and said, uh, uh, Dr. Gluck, I, I, let me help you. Uh, you really don't understand uh, the... Uh, the way in which studies are approved or disapproved in universities and the care that that's done and so on and so forth. And uh, so if and if you knew about that you you wouldn't you'd understand that there's really no need for that. So I I wrote this person back and I said, well, well you know, no. I've been on those committees that review uh exp- experimental proposals and uh, you know, the It's it's not always very impressive how these uh, these committees work, and uh, you know there was the the, uh, Department of the the USDA uh, uh, Ethics uh, Center there has done a review of how good animal care and use committees are, and they say they're not very good you know some some are good, they're very careful about how the animals are being dealt with, and so on and so forth, and others are not this is not some you know people from people from the ethical treatment of animals saying this this is the the uh uh u s d a the government agency that supports so much animal research saying that there needs to be improvement and uh, so i Wrote that to him, and I even sent the the sergeant the the general uh, accounting office's report, and he wrote me back, and he said, uh, "Well, you know, um, doing this uh, is just going to annoy people by asking them to ask more questions and respond more on more dimensions when they're doing these reviewing. It's just going to be annoying to them, and." Uh, I thought, you know, he may be right. I thought that was a good point. But I wrote him back and I said, maybe I was being too much of a smart ass. I said, you know, Plato said that we don't ever teach people ethics. We remind them. And maybe annoying somebody a little bit might turn out to be a reminder to some of the reviewers. Maybe there'd be some value in being annoyed. Uh, at least initially, and uh, um, and I think at that point we agreed to disagree. But um, but what I'm what I'm suggesting, and again, you know, um, I'm not a famous person, so when they get a letter from me, it's not like oh well, here's you know a Nobel Prize winner asking me to do this. Uh, maybe they you know somebody at that level would get much more attention than uh you know a uh you well, know, i think a reasonably credible scientist uh, you know with a a substantial ethical education uh but i'm not famous you know and i think that's what it takes some people at that nobel kind of level to be asking these kinds of questions and, to, and promoting this like we have to have scientists who have a moral identity as well as a technical identity or a purely scientific, theoretical identity. And uh, how do we get that? How do we encourage that? Um, You know, I've spent a lot of time over in medical schools and in my own medical school uh, doing ethics work over there and so on and so forth. And, you know, and uh, medical students are exposed a lot to Uh, uh, social science research and they're exposed to uh, uh, the humanities. You know, this is like new, I guess, probably not new, it's probably 15 or 20 years old now in, in medical education where it's the suggestion and the knowledge that people who are physicians can't lose that humanity part, that ethics humanity part of what it means to exist and to study and to treat people and so on and so forth. Now, I I, I don't see that same level taking place, at least in the science departments that I've been most uh, uh, aware of. I'm sure there are some very good examples, but not so, not so good examples around as well. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I remember this one case that came in the department I was in, and it was a graduate student who was uh, in the clinical area, studying to be a clinical psychologist, and uh, they had made some missteps in some aspect of their educational process that seemed to suggest that maybe uh, they weren't quite as ethical about keeping secrets and not speaking about what patients were talking about and things of that sort and so that they weren't very good at confidentiality and that's obviously a very significant aspect of being the clinicians is that and i remember the meeting that we had and the faculty decided well why doesn't why don't we send her to the experimental side is you know she could what we'll, she can she she'll have to leave the clinical area, but she could go be a an animal or a human researcher and I thought, "What <laughs> are you kidding uh, why, why would that those difficulties that you're seeing and sensing in this person ethically, why would that not be relevant to a person who is a human researcher or a person who studied vulnerable animals? And uh, it, w- it was like there isn't is not there there's not much ethics over there <laughs> in the in those areas, which of course is complete nonsense, and has been nonsense for a very long time. And uh, probably one of the most important ethical papers ever written about science and ethics was by. Uh, an anesthesiologist at Harvard in 1966, Henry Beecher. In 1966, he wrote an article about 26 experiments that he took out of the literature that he said were obviously unethical experiments in the simplest definition at 26. And that's 1966. And that really put human research on a very different track, there really hasn't been something like that that caught the attention of, of a profession in animal research. I think maybe Peter Singer's work has come close, um, and uh, and and some other uh, important uh, philosophers. Um, but I, it, there's still resistance there, where in the human domain in research. There has been a much wider opening to, to understand the limits and the responsibilities of me as a scientist and what I'm doing to a child or to a, let's say a person with a, you know, a medical diagnosis and I'm doing an experiment, and so on and so forth. It's much more uh, serious uh, in the human domain than it is in, in the animal world in a general sense still.
0: I I want to keep talking to you for another couple of hours. I'm sure there's much more ground that we can cover. But um, in in closing, I'd like to hear, is there anything that you're, you're currently working on or really curious about as we turn to the new year?
1: One of the things that I think is unfortunately been minimized is the way in which science really operates at its heart. Uh, You know, it's not just that we go and take courses in physics and chemistry and so on and so forth, and then we just apply those kinds of methods to the the problems that we create. There's a big social dimension of how labs work. You know, when I was at the University of Wisconsin, it's like we were monkey guys. We were the monkey people, you know, and that was like a culture, you know, and And we looked down on other researchers that didn't use non-human primates. And and it was a sense that, you know, we had a, uh, well, a culture among ourselves. And the methods that were typical in that culture are ones that we used. Now, that's, of course, all science works that way in a sense that, there's a tendency for human beings to form clusters, you know, and uh, uh, there was a book uh, written in the 1930s about um, uh, the social dimension of science, and it was the idea that what happens is cultures form, like I, I said before, and ways of thinking form. and And these become like real things that struggle with one another, you know, and um, uh, and also restrain and constrain how people think their science must be done. And so what um, Thomas Kuhn wrote a book in 1962, The Structure of Scientific Revolution, very crucial book. And what did he say is one of the what he called normal science was that you have a the, like in some domain you have a theory, and it's a, it, it explains a lot, and we stick with well that's that's how we explain such and such a phenomenon, and then when when experiment experimental results start coming in that conflict with that theory, there's a resistance to them. There's a an ignoring of this data that is a neg- has a negative kind of connotation for the theory itself. And we keep, we keep rejecting all that, those, that data that is telling us that our theory is wrong. We keep rejecting it, rejecting it, rejecting it, rejecting it. And then eventually there's so much of it, you get a scientific revolution. That's when things change, when there's a paradigm shift. And that term paradigm shift was Kuhn's. He said, but it's not like, you know, we it just takes the weight of all of this this contrary information coming before there's a switch. And um uh, and, and I think that's what we're dealing with now with animal research is that we're seeing a lot of contradictory data about the generalizability of many research findings done with animals to the uh, human medical circumstance to which it's directed. And that that it's doesn't give us a good picture of where to go clinically with human beings. And that evidence is coming more and more and more and more, but yet we resist, you know, um, universities are still big in building big animal research complexes and things of that sort. But, and here's all this evidence that uh, science needs to be transformed. We're ready for a revolution to organs on chips and, uh, uh, taking stem cells from humans so that we can see what the way in which human processes function as opposed to what happens to an albino mouse. Now we've learned a lot from studying rats, mice, and so on and so forth. Um, no question about that. But now we're seeing that they're not good models for so much in bio that's relevant to biomedicine. Um, so I, I I try to what I try to do is talk more about transformation, and uh, you know putting those data out in in classroom context. Well, let's look at what you know this group and at Duke discovered about how good how reliable this monkey model of schizophrenia was for real schizophrenics. Here it is. What, what do you think of that? You know you have the FDA saying things like. Uh, Uh, over 90% of drugs that are seen as effective and safe in animals are not effective and safe in human beings. Now, again, this is the FDA saying that it's not the Humane Society of the United States. It's not People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. It's the FDA saying that. Now, so it's trying to break down that resistance, that called normal science that, you know, you've got a theory, it's, you stick with it and then you get bombarded by contradictory data and you just have to have so much of it before you change your mind about things. Uh, a lot of time is wasted. A lot of animals lose their lives and a lot of humans lose their lives while we're waiting for that revolutionary transition. How do we speed it up? Um, so that's what I'm concerned about. Now. That's what I, try I will to...
0: join you in that hope. Let's. I want to see that, don't you?
1: Yeah. Good. Thank you, Kelly.
0: <laughs> well, Dr. Gluck, thank you so much for your time today. And listeners, I encourage each of you to definitely check out this book, uh, *Voracious Science and Vulnerable Animals: A Primate Scientist's Ethical Journey*. Thank you so much, John.
1: Thank you, Kelly. I appreciate it very much. Bye, bye.